Welcome to the Catalyst Church Podcast. We're here up in Humboldt County, California. We're glad you're with us. We hope that you're blessed and that you find peace and grace in the Word of God today. important thing that we can do when it comes to understanding the book of Romans is to anchor ourselves in the truth that Paul was trying to communicate through all of it because we can easily get lost in the weeds of this place like I don't even know where I'm going I don't know where God is taking us this is really confusing but there is there are anchor points in this book that Paul is constantly trying to bring people back together on and so I want to anchor us in that today and hopefully that'll keep us moving forward into the chapters to come because um you guys will probably be in romans until advent and everybody will be like i am so sick of romans and that's okay we'll all be sick of romans together and then we'll be like we just need to get back to the words of jesus again we'll do that too but the reason that romans can be such a difficult thing for myself and for probably many of you of you is is because it's kind of been set up in my experience as a form of systematic theology like it's a system i need to follow like, like Paul is presenting a formula towards salvation that if you follow this Romans road, you will eventually get to where you need to go and you'll arrive in some sort of space perfected and put together and whole. In the process, you probably are heaped with a lot of shame and guilt and feelings of like, oh, I'll never measure up. So that's like how Romans has been presented to me in a lot of ways, but I don't think that that was what Paul was trying to communicate. So I want to root us in what Paul was saying again and again. And the thing is that, that, that the anchor point that Paul was communicating was to bring unity of humanity under Christ Jesus through the gospel message. Okay. And, and, and the gospel, this, this gospel message of salvation that Paul talks about is one where Jesus brings people together. There are a million things in this world that tend to divide us, where we see each other based on our differences instead of our unification. And Paul is wanting to bring people back to this understanding of the gospel. The power of God through the gospel is one that actually pulls people back together instead of tearing people apart. So there's a theologian by the name of Peter Enns, and he writes, uh, for Paul, Romans was about the, hum the unity of humanity under Christ. That was the point. We lose the message completely if we reduce the book of Romans to an evangelical pamphlet, which is not what it was. Let's keep that in mind as we go forward. Usually at Catalyst, what we do here is we have a lot of conversation, a lot of back and forth, a lot of like discussion of what's happening in the scripture. I'm not sure how much we'll have that today. I'd love to have that, but what we're gonna look at today is a lot of content. You might want to take notes as I go along. You might just want to listen and digest it. We're recording it, so it'll be up on YouTube eventually as well. But just to give you a heads up uh, about how it will go today. Um, I, I grew up across the street from a, uh, of a home that there was a, there was a huge field across the street from my house. And it was such a big field that I thought it was like Narnia. I thought I could get lost in it. It was probably no bigger than an acre. But when you're a kid and the grass grows higher than your head, it felt like the entire world lived across the street in this field. And I would go into this field all the time and play with my friends. But something that grew abundantly in this field was a plant called milkweed. And the monarch butterflies would descend on this field during their season of, of uh, 
birth, I guess. And they would, they would lay their larva, they would lay their eggs on this milkweed. And then as the larva and the caterpillars were born, they would eat the milkweed until eventually they would form a chrysalis and, um, and become a, a butterfly. So I would go through this field during caterpillar season and I would like pick up tons of milkweed and a few caterpillars and put them in mason jars and bowls on top and put it in my house and like kind of watch to see when this caterpillar would turn into a butterfly, it would form the chrysalis. And what I realized over time was that this is not a process that happens overnight. It takes quite a lot of time to like take care of this caterpillar. And then whenever the caterpillar is finally ready, it forms the chrysalis and then the, the metamorphosis takes anywhere from two weeks to a few months sometimes. And the entire time I'm like waiting, I can't wait to see what happens. But it takes a certain amount of patience to see this caterpillar's tissues completely break down and reorganize themselves into what looks like an entirely new creature. This process of metamorphosis took time and patience, uh, it, it required a calming humility in allowing the things that were outside of my control to not be rushed. So I want us to remember this phrase of metamorphosis as we read today's passage of scripture out of Romans, not chapter one. Today, we're gonna look at Romans chapter 12. I'm gonna do an overview of who Paul was, why he wrote the letter and who presented the letter. And then next week, we'll start in Romans chapter one. So turn with me to Romans chapter 12 in your Bibles, or you could pull it up on, you could Google it, pull it up on an app, however you have it. Um, we're just going to read the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. And I, I would encourage you this week, if you're looking for something to read in scripture and you're like, I just don't even know where to sit in scripture sometimes. I don't even know how to read my Bible. I, I encourage you just to read Romans 12 a few times this week. You could read the whole book of Romans, but it's really intense. But Romans chapter 12, I feel like is kind of the, it's like, it's like what, what Paul was trying to communicate more than anything else to this entire letter. He says, therefore, I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That word transforming, the transformation of the mind, that, is, uh, that word is the, is the word that we get metamorphosis from. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like, okay, I know Jesus. I submitted my life to Christ. He is the Lord and Savior of my life. Like, it following Jesus is what I do. I love Jesus so much, but yet why do I still struggle with this area in my life? Why do I still find self-hatred coming up in weird ways? And, or, or why am I con feeling contempt towards a certain group of people or a certain person? Why do I still harbor bitterness and unforgiveness in my life? If I've been transformed by Christ, I'm no longer who I once was. I think what Paul is trying to communicate here is that transformation takes patience it takes time. It, it, it takes a, a softness and a humility of our hearts that allows Jesus that allow, allows allows those patterns of our life to take shape differently. And so I think what I see throughout this book is an invitation not towards 
quick perfection, not towards getting it all perfectly right or not towards forgiving immediately, although that would be wonderful, but more giving yourself grace to realize that all of it is a process. We are being transformed every day into new creatures, into a new type of person. But sometimes it can be hard when we don't arrive there immediately. So this book is really one that is just soaked in grace, grace for ourselves, grace for each other, grace for the church. Okay, any thoughts before we keep going? Anything coming up? All right. So Paul believed that the gospel was the power of God for the transformation of individuals and for society as a whole. And that transformation, Paul believed, began in the church. And it didn't happen overnight. We know that our churches are still super divided today. We know that that many ways we, we live in a culture that cancels each other, that avoids difficult conversations, that, that tends to hate those who are different from anyone who, who votes differently, believes differently, looks differently. So I believe that this book is actually has great relevance in our lives today. I, I think that we're going to find ourselves really impacted by this book in a way that I think will be really surprising. So the first question I'm going to go through is, hold on. Oh, okay. Who, why did, why did Paul write this letter? Or not why, but who even, who even was Paul in the first place? A lot of us know the story of Paul, how he was converted on that road. Uh, but just to let you know about who he was a little bit more so we can understand why he wrote the letter he wrote and how he wrote the letter. Um, he was a Jewish man who was born in 6 AD in a place called Tarsus. And Tarsus was a capital city in a Roman province, which gave him uh, Roman citizenship and all the good stuff that came with Roman citizenship. He was given the Jewish name Saul, which means asked for or prayed for, like his parents had prayed for him for quite some time and named him as such. He was super smart. He excelled in schooling so much so that he studied under like this really famous rabbi named Gamaliel. And then he went on to become a Pharisee. And studying under Gamaliel would be like us being able to study under Ram Dass or Aristotle or C.S. Lewis or somebody that like we really respect and admire. Now the, the Pharisees saw themselves as the righteous keepers of God's law. They, they enforced God's law as that was like their most important mission that they could possibly ever live into. It was their primary focus. So much so that if Jews were living outside of God's laws, the Pharisees saw that it was their responsibility to make it right with those people, to get them back on the straight and narrow, back on track. And one of the deviations from God's laws that Saul believed he was responsible to put an end to was this false Messiah called Jesus. There was this growing subsect of Judaism that found themselves under the spell of this Jesus where they believed that he was the Messiah or this biblically promised divine rescuer who would, who would save God's people, the Israelites, from any kind of oppression or any kind of evil forces in the world. And Saul had heard about this growing, misinformed population and believed that his mission was to stop it in its tracks before it went too far. And he had the right to stop it 
with any means necessary. So he, when he was about 24 years old, which how many of us at 24 had all the righteous indignation and all the, we knew exactly how life should be. And we were like, this is, I'm full force ahead. So he was about 24. He, he begins this quest of like violent intimidation and threat against anyone who called themselves a Christian or back then they were called followers of the way. And Saul oversaw the murder and martyrdom of a man named Stephen, who was pelted with these fist-sized rocks until he was murdered, until he died. And Stephen was murdered because of his love for Jesus, because he believed Jesus was the Messiah, and Saul made sure that it happened. So three years after his quest began to start to like stop this uh, this messianic thing that was happening around him, this movement, Saul had these marching orders from the high priests to go into this town called Damascus to round up all of the followers of the way and to put them into prison or to, to do some sort of intimidation and threat towards them to help them stop what they were doing. And as he's on this journey into this town, he is stopped in his tracks by this bright light from, from the heavens, it says, and a voice spoke over him and the voice said, Saul, why are you hurting me? Why are you persecuting me? And Saul recognizes that the voice is Jesus. And he has this conversion moment in that experience right then. He's then blind. He's led to Damascus where he's in this area for a few days. And this this other follower of the way named Ananias is brought to to Saul and, and, and Ananias teaches Saul some things and and then Saul's baptized, and Saul recognizes that if he, like the worst of the worst, you guys, like the person that is like absolutely the worst human that you could possibly think of, who is at your throat every single second, if he can experience the grace of God through Jesus Christ, he knew anybody could. And so his entire mission changed from that point on. He was just like so compelled to share what he had experienced in his life. He was no longer who he once was. And time and again, he still talks about this process of being transformed, of being renewed, of going back to his old patterns and ways of living, even after he'd experienced such a transforming experience in that moment. But his whole goal was to then do that. So during his time, Saul then changed his name, his Jewish name from prayed for, and he changed it to a Greek name, which was Paul. And that means small, little, or humble. He purposefully did this because no longer was it power or might or being right all the time. It wasn't his ego and his pride that was driving him forward. Paul wanted to be known as a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus Christ through God. And and Paul wanted to boast in his weakness his need for God's rescue. He wanted to be known as the smallest so Christ could be seen as the greatest. And friends, I I know that for myself, and I'm sure for all of us in here, we know that the, the biggest obstacle towards being in any kind of relationship with each other or even a relationship with God is our pride and ego. Like that is the thing that destroys relationships. And Paul knew that. Jay, do you have something to say? No, I was just going to say, uh, I love that you're sharing this because it really speaks to the metamorphosis. Yeah, tell me more. Well, just, you know, to, to humbleness is a process. <laughs> yes, that's it all, is. That's all I'm saying. Humility is a process. Yeah. Oh, man, it sure is. It sure is. I mean, how many times are like, have people had to speak into our lives that, in an area that we just did not even see? We didn't even see that pride. 
Oh, I had a friend that just recently spoke into my life about the same thing. She's so brave and she's just like, Hey, you know, this is what I'm seeing. And okay. I guess I'll share this. She's like, this is what I'm seeing on Instagram. Like you, you're kind of putting yourself out there in a way that looks a little vain. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, I absolutely am. I'm, this is, this is something I'm kind of embracing for myself, a, an affirmation that I felt like I, I needed in my life. And, and because she spoke truth into me and I was able to receive it, I've stepped away from Instagram for the last month. And, um, and it's been really healing and freeing in a lot of ways, but there is like, if people aren't willing to speak into our lives and if our hearts aren't open to receive the truth that they are speaking into us, then we don't really, that transformation is much slower. It doesn't happen as, as rapidly as the spirit would probably invite us to receive. Anything else before I keep going? All right, cool. And y'all can speak or interrupt or whatever, anytime. That's, that's how we do it here. So Paul went around the Roman world and he's sharing about how Jesus had rescued him and saved him and repaired him because salvation, I know sometimes we've heard that salvation is just like this ticket to heaven. Like you just ask Jesus into your heart and then, you know, you're, you're in the right place or whatever. That that's not what salvation means. Salvation for Paul and for Jesus was, it is the healing of what has been broken. That is what it means to be saved. Salvation is a right relationship with God. And Paul's goal was to help people find that salvation through Jesus Christ, because in Christ is the fullness of life. With, that, with Jesus, it's like life finally begins to make sense. With Jesus, life becomes beautiful and purposeful, because with Jesus, we can finally see that we are beloved, that our identity first and foremost is that we are the beloved child of God, that before anybody speaks a word over you, before anybody says, this is who you are, or before you say, this is who I am, the first and the most core reality about you, friends, is that you are beloved. And Jesus makes that truth even more profound in our lives, allows us to receive that truth. And for Paul, nothing could stop him from helping people and helping the church receive that truth. So for 31 years, friends, for 31 years, Paul traveled throughout the Roman world. He stayed in some places for like three to four years. Sometimes he was just there for a few months. And, and during that time, he wrote different letters to different churches and different communities, helping guide them and, and, and through like difficulties, through their hard circumstances. He, he helped um, counsel them in, in money issues that they were facing or how to live as faithful followers of Jesus in difficult times or what it means to be a Christian and live in, in unity in the midst of differences, um, how to hold on to hope when it felt like despair was like all that they could see how to live in a grace-soaked world and how to receive that grace for their lives. These are the things that Paul would write down for these different churches that were struggling in different areas of their lives. And after 23 years of traveling throughout, after 23 years of Paul being knocked down by the voice of Jesus, Paul wrote a letter to the church in Rome. And it's a church he's never been to before. Sometimes it's easy to see Paul's life in like um, 
because we only really have like scripture that tells us about Paul and it's like fact after fact after fact and, and event after event. And it and it, you kind of see him as like this very dry person. But it's important to speak life into the into the characters in God's word. I think it's important to see them as actual human beings. And and within that we we can see that that Paul experienced all sorts of hardship in his life. He was thrown into prison multiple times and prison wasn't just like a place where you got three square meals a day. It was a damp, cold hole in the ground without any sunlight, totally secluded, without any really much nutrients or sustenance. He lived in those holes sometimes for a year. He experienced being whipped. He was beaten. He was rejected. He was ridiculed. He had to run for his life multiple times. He probably slept bad some badly sometimes. He probably like ached with his back. I'm sure he like was really grumpy in the mornings. I would I would think that he felt loneliness and rejection and fear and hunger and anxiety. I'm sure he experienced depression, the ups and downs of what it means to be human. He he also probably ate the best meals of his life with his closest friends and drank really good wine and he told jokes and racist friends around a block because of course that's what you do and when finances were tight he would drum up work by mending somebody's tent or building some structure but the question remains knowing a little bit about paul who he was why he would have written the things he wrote why did he write this letter because this is a place he had never been to before okay so for this we're going to have to jump back two weeks ago to Pentecost. Is everybody doing okay? Y'all doing good? Okay, speak. Anybody can get up and get coffee and donuts, you know, make yourself at home. Okay, really quick also, before I forget this announcement, because I forget announcements all the time. We're asking people to bring their own mugs on Sundays so that we can take it home and wash it and bring it back. We'll have paper cups, but bring your own mug. Okay, back to the sermon. <laughs> so, uh, Pentecost is something that we celebrated two weeks ago. It is the birthday of the church, the start of the church. And Pentecost means 50. It comes 50 days after Passover. There are some of God's laws in the Old Testament that has to do with the celebration of festivals that mark certain seasons and certain times, important times and occasions in the life of Israel. And God was like, hey, don't forget about these things. So, so you don't forget about it. We're going to have like a feast and a festival every year, kind of like we do for Christmas and all of those sorts of things. So it's just like a common thing. Now, the way that they celebrated that was everybody who was Jewish, whoever could get off work and were able to make it work, would travel into Jerusalem for these festivals and they would stay there for the festival and then travel back to their home countries after that. A mass pilgrimage would happen in Jerusalem during Passover and other festivals. So this mass group of people descend on Jerusalem for Passover, and then most of them stuck around because the next festival was 50 days later, and instead of heading back home and then coming back for the festival of Pentecost, they just stuck around. So 50 days after Passover is Pentecost. Now, one of the Passover festivals, what we see is Jesus is, uh, is arrested, and he's killed by the Romans on a Roman cross. And while he hung on the cross dying, Jesus took the cumulative weight of all sin and death. And when he died, all of those things, all those areas of self-harm and hatred, all those areas of contempt died 
with him. And when he rose from the dead, they did not rise with him. So when we live into those sorts of areas of contempt and, and self-hatred, we are living into a lie, into something that is actually not alive and has no power. So when we live into it, we're giving it power that doesn't actually exist. That is what Jesus did for us, for all people. So when he died and then he rose from the dead, he conquered everything, gave an unending, lavish grace. And then 50 days later, his Holy Spirit was given to the followers of these Jewish Christians, these, uh, these followers of the way. And they began to share about how God had transformed their lives through Jesus Christ. So they're all in this upper room. The Holy Spirit comes in. There's like fire and, and a, bit, a loud wind. And it's just, it's like, it's bananas up there. And they're like, oh my gosh, we got to get out of here. It's really freaky. So they go outside of this room and they're all sharing about what God has done in their lives in different languages. And all these Jews from around the world that are there for Pentecost are hearing the message of Jesus as the Messiah in their own familiar languages. And in Acts, we read that 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah that day. Okay, stay with me. A hundred years before this, uh, and during this time, a hundred years before this time, there lived in Rome about 50,000 Jews. So from 50, and this is all documented in history. So a hundred years before this, 50,000 Jews lived in Rome. And we just know that they must have you know, more and more have lived there for, throughout the hundred years. And so a, a good portion of folks went from Rome into Jerusalem during Pentecost. They heard the message of Jesus as the Messiah. And then they moved back into their hometowns of Rome. And they came back into the spaces as Messianic Jews. They know that Jesus is the Messiah. They've been totally changed and transformed by this experience. And then they go back to Rome with this new experience. And they're telling their brothers and sisters in the synagogue, they're worshiping together. They're saying, hey, we know that the Messiah is here. We've actually been able to experience this Messiah. And this is who he is. And some of the Jews in the area are just like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Tell me more. And others are like, absolutely not. This is heretical. You need to stop talking immediately. But yet they're still worshiping together in the synagogues together, trying to do life together with totally different perspectives. And it became such a problem that riots started to happen in the street between those who were messianic and those who were not, that Claudius, the emperor, the Roman emperor, issued a decree that every Jewish person had to leave Rome. They were no longer allowed to live there. So turn with me to Acts chapter 18 real quick. Um, and I'm going to read a couple of verses in Acts chapter 18. Acts is a book of the Bible that talks a lot about uh, the story of the early church movement. Um, we know Paul from Acts. Uh, we read about his whole, all of his like missionary journeys and all the travels that he did. So at uh, Acts chapter 18, verse one, it says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila and a, na a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. And every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So this is Aquila and Priscilla, which later on throughout the scriptures, we see that it's actually Priscilla and Aquila, which means that she was the, the leader, the spiritual leader of the home and the spiritual leader of the church. And her husband helped with her in that uh, endeavor. 
But these are people from Rome who got to learn under Paul, and then they went back to Rome once Claudius had died and continued forth in the message that they heard from Paul that was very communal and inclusive of the Greek people. Now, when the, the Jews were kicked out of Rome and the synagogues and the house churches kind of stopped happening, there were Greek people who had come, Gentile people who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit was still on fire, was still moving through that area. And they continued forth in the movement that the Jews had done. They continued forth in seeking Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And they helped the churches continue to happen. So when all of these Jewish Christians came back into Rome and continued to do the, the church movement, the, the home church, they were meeting together, you've got a You've got the church that began as entirely Jewish. The Christian church began entirely Jewish, coming back with these Gentile Christians who were not converts to Judaism and who were worshiping Jesus. I know this is a lot, you guys. I totally get it. But if you can imagine people who believe that Jesus is the Messiah and you have to be a Jew in order to receive Jesus, and people who believe Jesus is the Messiah and you don't have to be a Jew to receive Jesus coming together with absolute differences of every understanding of God's word and coming together under Christ. How do you think that would go? <laughs> they just did not get along. They could not see eye to eye at all. They both believed they were right. The Jews believed that they were the chosen of God. And so they had an in with the Torah, with the, the law, God's, God's laws. The Gentiles believed that they had it right because they didn't have, they, had, they got to live in freedom from all of those obstructions. And both believed they were the correct ones and the others were wrong. And to have a church come together in the midst of right and wrong is really hard, you guys. So Paul had been hearing about this and he knew that he had to write a letter to the church of Rome because for the Gentile Christians, it was to show them that God's approval can't be found in good works. And for the Jewish Christians, God's approval can't be found in ceremonial works, but that God's approval is found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, namely in grace. So this entire book that Paul is writing is rooted in the kind of unmerited grace that repairs every broken relationship and leads to unity under Christ. And friends, we know this more than anything. Not only is, are we divided from ourselves, we're divided from each other, we're divided from, the churches are divided from each other, we're divided in the church, we can't come to see eye to eye on every single thing, and so we break off and start a new congregation, or we go to this church down the street because they agree with more things that I agree with, and instead of seeing Christ as the center, we see our differences as the center. God's entire goal, God's entire invitation is one of unity under Christ. And the enemy's entire goal is one of division. And if we can keep pointing the finger at those Christians over there that are getting it wrong, then we will never come together under Christ. And the enemy will forever keep us distracted from seeking justice and mercy and humility. The book of Romans tells a different story. <laughs> It tells a different message of what it looks like to move together as people of God for justice and humility and mercy in this world. Okay, last thing. Anything else? Anything else going on before I get to the last point? 
All right. Okay. Lastly, um, and this is really important for those of us who grew up a little bit more evangelical or a little bit more conservative, because I remember growing up and I, I remember like driving in the car one day with my dad, Rush Limbaugh was on for sure, for sure. <laughs> and I remember <laughs> talking to him and I was like, it's like, you know what, dad, I don't like Paul. And he goes, what, what are you talking about? I said, I think Paul's a male chauvinist pig. That's what I said. I don't think he appreciated it very much, but many of us grew up seeing Paul as kind of like that male chauvinist dominating voice that was very like anti-women, anti-female leadership, very much patriarchal in nature. Uh, because that's how, you know, we, we read the scriptures and that's what we're kind of seeing in a lot of ways if we read it at face value. I want us to see that Paul spent three months writing this letter. He poured his entire self into it. It's like he bled himself onto these pages because he cared so deeply for these Roman Christians and for the gospel and for the hope that he could see that could come if they came together in unity. Now, Paul didn't make it to Rome for another five years. So he had to send the letter ahead of him. And the, the person that he chose to send the letter ahead of him was somebody that he trusted tremendously. It was one of his church leaders. He trusted this person. He worked with this leader for a long time. He helped them read the letter in his voice. He practiced with this person in his mannerisms and in, in, in his as his mouthpiece to convey the message as accurately as he would if he was there. And the person that he chose to convey this letter was not Barnabas, his traveling companion, or Luke, another traveling companion, or Silas, somebody he would preach the gospel with all the time, or even Peter, the main leader of the church. He could have chosen any of those strong voices to convey the message. He chose Phoebe. He chose a Gentile convert from a pagan background. That's who he chose to give the message of Jesus Christ to this church. And there's this book that I've been reading called Reading Romans Backwards. And I think, you know, we don't really find out that it's Phoebe until like the very last chapter of Romans. And for a lot of us, we like start Romans and we're just like, I'm going to read through. And you get to verse like chapter 14 and you're like, okay, I'm done. We're good. I'm going to move on to the next thing. And so we don't really recognize who wrote it because a lot of us never get to chapter 16. So reading Romans backwards, it starts us in the right place in a lot of ways. And Scott McKnight writes, the apostle Paul is one of the most influential thinking thinkers in the history of the Christian world and most influential in his writings in his letter to the Romans. This oft claimed patriarchal male asks a wealthy, influential female, Phoebe, not only to deliver his prized letter, but also to read it to each of the five or six or more house churches in Rome. Letters in Paul's world were the embodied, inscripted presence of the letter writer, in this case, Paul. He chooses a woman to embody his letter, which means the face of Paul is experienced in the face of Phoebe. Before anyone hears the letter, they encounter the body of Phoebe in their midst. So friends, I am, um, I'm really excited about this book. I am. I, I know that I, I totally still feel ill-equipped to like come before you or, or anybody else who's going to be teaching every week. Um, but, I, but we live in a world that is so marked by our differences, like that, that we define ourselves by our differences and by the ways that we are divided 
than the truth that actually unites us, the love that actually unites us. And I believe this book is incredibly relevant for the time we live in. And so we, we might have to just start disentangling ourselves from our own pride and ego a bit, like coming before it with a bit of humility and, and, and laying our personal preferences down. Maybe humility might take root in our hearts as we listen and we learn from each other and we learn from these writers here and we learn from people that think totally differently from us in our midst. And maybe those differences that can easily tear us apart and usually do can actually be the things that we can rejoice in each other. Instead of seeing our differences as a form of fear or being scared that I'm going to be influenced by somebody who thinks so differently than me, maybe there's an invitation for us to receive a curiosity to learn from each other and to grow and to see how God is working in each other's lives. This church, this, these early church people, man, they, they had so many divisions, so many. And they, they, it was easier to meet in different church houses and, and not come together at all. It was so much easier to do that. But the one thing that they did every week that they gathered together, even in the midst of their differences, is they gathered around the table. They took bread that represents Christ's body broken for us. And they took wine. And we have juice that represents his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of all things. And they said, okay, we will not agree with you. We do not think that you're doing this right, but we agree enough to do this together. The table of God's grace is the most unifying thing that we can celebrate week after week. And so that's why we do that every week. We sing songs of worship. We, you guys can stand, you can sit, you can run through the park while we worship. You can cartwheel, dance, whatever you want to do. This is your time just to really place your affections and your thoughts on God. And we receive the Lord's Supper. Well, I'll bring it right over here. Um, and we have the generosity boxes. So this is our time of response to respond to, to the word that God has given um, how are we doing on time? Okay, so before we sing, I want to read all of chapter 12. Okay, so let's turn with, with uh, in our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. So Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body, with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying with your faith, if it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor sharing, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, 
patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil, anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Before we go into our time of response through singing, we're going to pray out our prayer of confession. And there's just a reality that this confession is one that affects us as individuals and affects us as the church. There are ways that, are, that the church has very much fallen short of how it means to live a life of justice, mercy, and humility.